0: You know, I think the headline of the story is they're like the NBA's frequent flyers. The the Trailblazers actually, I believe, um, again, I'd have to pull it up and look at the stats, but I think they fly more than any team in professional sports. So you can make the case that they're the most sleep-deprived team in professional sports. So that what caffeine is for them is different than anybody else. Um, It's like working the graveyard shift in some ways.
1: Welcome to The (laughs) Catch-Up.
2: Introducing
1: your hosts. Eli Abreu. Editor-in-chief. And Jeffrey Kutnick, CEO, and apparently the only guy who takes this podcast seriously. Of the craziest, most bestest, news-breaking, food-porn-peddling, viral website on the dot-coms, Food Feast. It's crazy when your future is decided by an algorithm. Dude, this pizza is fucking crazy. There's not one person in this entire world that believes you. All
2: right. And welcome to the ketchup. All right. Welcome back to the ketchup, y'all. It's a podcast that's food for your ears. Jeff, are you down for this? Kind of that was a description shout out to this is Fogie on Instagram for listening suggesting that I'll keep shouting out those reviews on iTunes if you leave your Instagram account in the description but let's talk some weird NBA diets Jeff let's do it okay We're, we're in the heat of the NBA playoffs right now Jeff and I love basketball he's a diehard Clippers fan go Clips Whatever. I'm Lakers all day, so go Lakers. Uh, we play in high school ball. I'm still pretty nice at 24 Hour Fitness.
1: <laughs> you would put that in the um, intro.
2: <laughs> we talk ball all the time here, but we rarely find an intersection of basketball and food. So that's why I'm excited to have the legendary ESPN writer, <laughs> Mr. Baxter Holmes in the building. Uh, he's once a beat reporter for the lakers for espn he's covered the celtics for the boston globe but baxter is a food beast at heart if i have to say (laughs) some of his best reporting is explaining the world of sports through food he's written about a charcuterie board that revolutionized modern basketball he's covered the secret team dinners that built the san antonio spurs dynasty he's a james beard award-winning article about the nba's once secret addiction to peanut butter and jelly sandwiches baxter welcome to the ketchup podcast
0: man. you you opened with legendary uh, (laughs) not gonna spend the rest of
2: the podcast trying to live up to that (laughs) we'll start high and and keep jumping off cliffs this is good welcome man thank you man thank you for having me dude i i spent a lot of time reading up on your articles now i I remember the nba p pb and j one and you just have a great body of work
0: it's, uh, it's not one I really ever expected to have. Well, first of all, thanks for reading. So you're the one. Yeah, thanks for, there yeah. you go. <laughs> <laughs> It's nice that, you know, Fan Club 01, I appreciate that. But, yeah, I mean, and a lot of those stories are long stories. So thanks for committing the time uh, to read them. But, um, I yeah, I never, you know, I'm always looking for good stories, and I never anticipated that a sliver of the however many I've written would, you know, be some intersection of the culinary world and sports, but it's turned out that there's a fair number of good stories there, so.
2: Was the peanut butter and jelly article the first foray into covering food within sports, or how did that kind of start? You know, okay, so it's an interesting, that's a good question. Starting
0: off the bat, good, I like it. Let's get uh, it. So the very first one actually was um, about Kobe Bryant and this bone broth that the team would make for him uh, especially before every single game and I learned about it during one of his final years when I was covering the the Lakers for um, ESPN as a beat reporter and I remember talking to their strength and conditioning coach about like what it everything it takes to keep Kobe up and running he's you know uh, was older in his career, it had, had a lot of injuries like what's it take I know he goes through a lot of physical therapy and things. And he said, um, well, you know, we do this, we do that. We always make sure he gets his uh, soup on game days before the game. So I was like, what what are you doing? What is this? And uh, they were describing how he has to have it specially made uh, with, like, really rich bone broth. And it's good for the joints, like the collagen and whatnot, which is important for all the mileage he had on his frame. And uh, they would contact hotels ahead of time to make sure they had the proper ingredients and could make it ahead of time. And there were different ways he liked it. And I thought that was, like, an interesting thing. And I told my editors. and. Um, it they put it on page one of ESPN wow. and uh, or ESPN.com, and I remember there was like a, a lot of reaction to it. And then after that, um, I remember noticing that the Lakers had this special chocolate milk that was in all of the players' lockers after every game, and they would like rush in there, and it was specially made. They would contact Whole Foods in advance in the various cities they were going to to have it specially made, and it was like for recovery purposes, whatnot like that was a fun story, and um, again, there was like a lot of reaction to it. You know, who knew that people like chocolate milk? Um, but uh, and then from there, I did the peanut butter and jelly one. So it kind of has gone from there a little bit. Again, I don't. I'm <clears throat> excuse me. I'm always just looking for like a good story, and um, I'm always probably looking for a way to build connections with readers and these and athletes with whom they. You know, like look, these guys are, are enormous. They're incredibly wealthy, incredibly famous. They're the top 1% of the world in what they do. There's not a lot of people on the planet who have any connection to these guys. But, you know, uh, the culinary world, food, it's one of the few things that, that makes us all human. And so uh, i have I've, that's kind of been reinstilled in me through these stories. So anyways, that's, a, that's
2: a, a very long-winded answer to your question about how some of this started. No, that's valuable because the idea of— People finding resonance even through bone broth, or just finding out what Kobe eats to become that one percent and the one percent of the one percent. If you're talking about Kobe, so I think that's a good entry point for people <laughs> that maybe don't even play sports or don't follow basketball reporting. And then all of a sudden, I can figure out because food is something everyone has access to. Yeah, and Most, uh, sure.
0: right, and you know, from there, I've done uh, so a story about peanut butter and jelly and how the NBA is obsessed with it, and a story about wine in the NBA. And the kind of booming uh, connoisseurs throughout the league, you know, you mentioned at the top the story about uh, San Antonio Spurs and their head coach Greg Popovich and the team, the art of the team dinner. Um, and I did a story as you guys mentioned on the top too about this this kind of charcuterie board that was this um, entry point for the Warriors and diagramming um, the uh, at the very first instance of their offense and what it would become. So uh it's it yeah you know it's it's funny as i look back again i never anticipated a lot of this stuff but you know it it has resonated with people i guess in a way in part because it's one of the like one of the best things that people that uh readers ever tell me is i don't care about sports but i really enjoyed that story and uh i think that that's what you know because like sports fans are going to read these stories no matter what nba fans are because they're interested in the nba Um, but I think I'm always thinking of, like, what's the bigger pool? What's the bigger audience that I can reach? And it doesn't get much bigger than just being human.
1: Yeah. Yeah, because I'm assuming the the majority of feedback that those articles got was, was the humanizing aspect of what was being written, right? Like you mentioned, Baxter, the, the players that you're talking about are – wealthy and they're they're a professional athlete and there's distance between them and someone sitting in the 300 seats, right? But then when you explain the nuances of Kevin Garnett liking strawberry in his PB&J, it's like, yo, that's know, me. Like, like, yo, I like-, I like strawberry. Wait, <laughs> he requests, he, oh, so Lillard likes his toasted? Like those are all things, yeah. they, they, <clears throat> these are everyday humans. And I think that's what gets me so excited about the story. And then I'm also a geek on basketball. So on top, there's two layers for me. But at the very least, the food, I think and almost everyone can relate to on some aspect.
2: Yeah, it's badass because I can't relate to dunking a basketball. Yeah. Like when I see Kevin Garnett, <laughs> do, I'm like, dude, oh, I can't talk to my friend. You see that dunk that Kevin Garnett, but like I can be like, yo, he likes the same peanut butter that I do. That's tight. I want to dig in a little bit to that story. I know it was a little while ago, but it's so fascinating to me. And I'm sure people at home, if you haven't read this article, go read it. There's great pictures. Don't worry. Um, the words, the words are fantastic as well. Um, I didn't know Dwight Howard had such an addiction to sugar and a problem with it, essentially.
0: Yeah, I mean that's a that's a serious part of the story, and um, he was so addicted that he was displaying, according to his, um, somebody I interviewed, like a what would be considered the um, early signs of, of kind of like onset diabetes or whatever I'm not a, I'm not a medical person so I, I'm not doing a good job explaining it but he was having the jo- um, he was consuming so much sugar every day that and you can become addicted to it sugar I mean people will explain that to me like sugar's a drug you know you can it'll uh, it, it can happen anyways but it, his hands were like tingling because of it and he was having a hard time catching the ball and they really needed to and it, also he I think had undergone back surgery but there was some, and I think you have the story in front of you, so you can you can uh, point it out to me. But somebody was telling me that he was consuming like the equivalent of like a dozen uh hershey bars worth of sugar every single day. i think you wrote about
2: 20 it was the equivalent of 20 or maybe it was a g- two dozen candy bars worth of sugar a day it a- was it was yeah like that's a
0: legitimate scary thing and um, i've heard of other stories of, of uh and then i've seen like documentaries of people being addicted to sugar there's actually several really powerful sugar documentaries but yeah i remember that but then the thing i actually remember where i was was when i was interviewing the uh, nutritionist for the lakers and she was saying like yeah you know it was funny and we were like we had to overhaul his diet and tell him these are all the things we gotta cut out. And the the only question he asked was like, well, can I still eat peanut butter and jelly sandwiches? And it was indicative of what that is around the NBA. Um, you know, that started for me when I was uh, actually an intern at the Boston Globe in the summer of 2008, the Lakers Celtics finals was going on. And I remember there was some story about how Kevin Garnett had the team like eating PB and J all year. And that was kind of interesting. I was like, oh, that's weird. And then uh, when I became a full-time NBA beat writer later incidentally enough i think it was like five years later for the globe um and i started traveling around the nba i would see peanut butter and jelly sandwiches in, like every locker room before games i'd see them in training facilities and i was like man look this is really and so then i just was like i told my managers like hey can i look into this a little bit and they're like yeah sure that's fine you know whatever and uh there was this whole other thing there so um it's you know there were a lot of fun stories in there. their reaction to that story, and then the you know the James Beard Award and everything. Like I still probably hear about that story once a day. So you met my quota for today. There we go. <laughs> um, but but and this is what it's like two two years old something like that. Yeah. But, um, you know what? It the, the thing I'll I'll say about it real quick. Um, we're talking about food and like the the power of food and uniting people. I've come to learn that. The peanut butter and jelly sandwich is one of the most important things in it to people in part because it's so deeply tied to your childhood mm. and in large part like you know the sandwich your mom made you for going to school you know you have in the cafe room you know and like those those memories are really deeply powerful and
2: you know also the way that they it was made for you so um and memory- how was not made for some people i remember i forget the nba player you mentioned but someone that wasn't born here in the states had his first peanut butter and jelly sandwich.
0: Oh yeah, it was Christoph's porzingis.
2: And he you was go. like he became in love
0: with it. And um there's also science behind like why that's a perfect marriage. I like the science of like the acid and the sugar and everything like in your palate. It's like a it's an amazing thing. But um that is a very it's a touchstone dish for a lot of people when they think about their childhood and the way that it was prepared for them. Um, and that stays with them, and so their allegiances, as you were mentioned earlier, to like strawberry and grape, whatnot. I can't. I mean, the, the amount of messages I got from people about um, they were taking sides in that way, or like, oh, it's got to be creamy, or it's got to be chunky, or you know, no crust, or this kind of bread, or whatever. It was. Um, it was amazing to see the reaction to that. It taught me a lot uh, about how people feel about that, and then. Um, but it—it it was there. That underlying lesson too was about food and memory and the people that made it for you and how those things stay with you forever. How do you take your PB and J? Oh man, you know I don't even eat PB and J that much. I'm trying to think. Uh, I, I and this will sound like I'm hedging. I really don't have a hard preference over like creamy or um, or chunky or like whatever. I don't. You know, I've had it a lot of different ways, and it all tastes pretty good to me. There are. Uh, Uncrustable, uh, I think they're, it's made by Smuckers, I want to say. Yeah. Um, in the Staples Center press room before games. And I think those are made with um, uh, strawberry and creamy. And like, sometimes if I'm super hungry, like a lot of people in that room, I'll, I'll go for one of those and they're fine.
2: So. Oh, it's flames. That in the freezer a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> <Woo>! <laughs> I love Smuckers Uncrustables.
1: Baxter, your article specifically mentions Brian Dew, uh, a strength and conditioning coach of the Boston Celtics someone that i'm assuming is in the top 1% of what he does because he's working for an nba franchise he was creating 20 pb&js before the game and labeling them with the letters s for strawberry in sharpie how long has food been an aspect of high level paid staffing of nba sports teams and and do you have like you already mentioned the bone broth being prepared in my, for Kobe. In, in my head, I'm just seeing this heavy six-figure level coaching off, staff bro. that's putting these sandwiches together because the players want it and it's helping. Yeah. I'm just wondering when you started seeing that like to become a – was it PB&J first? Uh, so this is a really good question. Uh, there have been a lot in
0: recent years in the NBA of – Uh, improvements right like you know teams didn't always fly on charter planes Uh, they flew commercial for a long time and we've seen amazing um, renovations and brand new uh, practice facilities and teams are hiring I think the the Philadelphia 76ers one of my colleagues wrote uh, at ESPN has a have a like a James Beard award-winning chef as their nutritionist and who like prepares as the team chef who prepares meals and this has been in the arms race of improving the NBA, uh, or as people, as the owners invest in various elements of the teams, it's been an area uh, that has, has come a long way as the food. I think people had told me like way back in the day, you know, teams didn't necessarily even provide that much food. Or if they did, it was, you know, whatever. It might have been food in the arena, kind of fast food type stuff, like burgers and hot dogs, things like that. Um, but you've seen, there's been a great improvement in like the pregame spread, the postgame spread, the food on the plane. Um, really high-end uh, team chefs, players hiring personal chefs. They're they're trying to fine tune and eat really well because it's. I mean, their body is their business. Like they are fine, incredibly fine-tuned athletes. Um, but on top of that, you know, so you like you mentioned do, uh, and I think this is true. in other elements of the story, the, you know, the guys are kind of superstitious. Like some of them like certain things a certain way, and I remember people around the league telling me, like even if it sounds. A little bit crazy or a little bit weird you know these guys are creatures of habit and if they like if they think like it's actually kind of a mental thing if they think that eating a certain kind of thing before a game having it a certain way at a certain time puts them in a mental space that prepares them every time for whatever the the game ahead then that's worth it you know um it's not even i think it was a nutritionist who said this like a peanut butter and jelly is not even is not maybe the most the best thing that they can have but it's not the worst and the most important thing is it mentally um puts them in a space that they feel comfortable in and that's that's almost more valuable than anything so yeah it's some of these habits i'm sure are funny um in a way but uh look when there's like millions and millions of i mean some of these guys' just contracts and what's on the stake or what's at stake for for these franchises themselves, or themselves Like, you know, slapping together some PB&Js or whatever, or calling, you know, the team chef or the, uh, uh, you know, chef at the hotel at some Four Seasons where the Lakers are staying and saying, hey, we need this bone broth this way. Uh, It's a small investment
2: when you consider everything that's on the line. Are players more like independent contractors of the team or are they like employees of the team? And I ask because... As a segue into your article about with Greg Pop about how he kind of splurges and has really dope team dinners for for his team and the players and almost both on a recruitment level and kind of keeping people happy like do players when you hear LeBron James spends a million dollars on his body a year. Is that something the Lakers should be paying for? Or how does that work?
0: I mean, the, the Lakers do have a, an athletic training staff and people that he can work with there. But he's not going to be around the team the whole time. Like, he's going to be home. And, you know, Kobe, likewise, had a lot of specialists that he worked with individually who maybe he felt, given his body would um, and the things he, he maybe needed at that later stage of his career, would be better suited to help him with, um, but the team does have you know a, um, a big or you know a, most teams have pretty big size staffs to work with everybody, strength and conditioning coaches, had athletic trainers, physical therapists, massage therapists, uh, nutritionists. It goes on and on. Um, but you know guys like LeBron obviously are going to make an even bigger investment, and he, I I don't know what I'm assuming he has a gym at his own home, and and uh, I'd be very surprised if he doesn't. I'm pretty sure he does, but anyways. Um, but uh, to your question, are the individual con- – I mean, they are – I guess they're employees, right? I mean, they're under contract with these organizations. If you want to just look at it as a business sense, like they're being paid to, to for services rendered for the mm-hmm. teams themselves. But they're also, in their own way, kind of individual corporations. These contracts aren't forever. And mm-hmm. there's kind of a finite amount of time that they're going to play in the NBA. You know, Kobe was in it for a long time, but he's an anomaly in that way.
2: Um so it's a, a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B. Yeah, because Jeff and I were talking about Greg Pop, and I think in one of your articles it was something like a million dollars, maybe over the course so far he's spent. He's, on he dinners? spent. Oh, I mean, over the well, over twenty years,
0: I'd be I'd be very surprised if it wasn't, um, yeah, in the definitely in the seven figure range when you consider what he spent. You know, what I've been told that he's spent like on individual bottles of wine. So uh, just mm-hmm. at like one of those dinners, and that's not and counting you know, picking up the tab for a lot of very large individuals um, and then doing it over the course of many times during the season. But I remember thinking about that, um, you know, again, this goes back to what I was saying earlier. When you think about the amount of money that's involved with these guys' contracts, um, you know, the the NBA, the TV deal, the revenue sharing, like the many, many millions of dollars, a $20,000 dinner is like a small slice of that when you factor in, and what he believes is the amount of togetherness, and the camaraderie and the teamwork that you can forge uh, from something like that. So, and and look, I last I checked, the Spurs have been really good for a long time. So I think the investment, whatever they're doing, whatever
2: he's doing, I I think it's easy to say. That it works. It's total work. I think our nitpicky was like, "All right, cool. Is this coming out? Does he use like a San Antonio Spurs credit card on these dinners, or is he just like my contract is X million a year? Yeah. What's twenty thousand dollars for a dinner to keep me good with the team?" So,
0: keep- I, I it's a great question. um I think I posted in like a leftovers pun intended, maybe uh, <laughs> because I, I had a, a ton of material on that. I think you know I. I started on that one. Well, here's actually how that came about, if I can backtrack just yeah. Here. So I, I did um, – I noticed NBA players were posting a lot about wine in the NBA, right? They were posting pictures of being at wineries or wine regions or a lot of bottles, things like that. And I was just interested if they were uh, really genuinely curious and wine to learn about wine or if they were just spending money on wine because the NBA was a beer and liquor league for a long time. Mm-hmm. So I started looking into that. My boss is off the heels of the PB&J story – you know, granted me the gave me the okay to look ahead and into it. If you know, if you find a good story, let us know. And but every time I would mention like NBA and wine to people, they would say like, oh my God, Greg Popovich and they would just like start with some legend.
1: <laughs> and I was
0: I was like, okay, let's you know, that's great. I'm I'm I am trying to focus on the players. Um but the legends about him were amazing. So I kinda set everything aside. The story then the wine story came out in like February of Whatever 2018 maybe my time is messed up and then i kind of focus back on on pop and uh i mean the story look a he's been he's been into wine and food for a long time like 50 years um and he's been doing this with the spurs for you know like two decades so he has a lot of or nba players everybody has a lot of ground to cover to try to catch up to him but um that's so that's how that story came out but to your question about the the expenses the out-of-pocket um i've been told that he principally pays for almost every dinner and at least the wine out of pocket um and the wine is you know the biggest probably expense for a lot of these dinners i'm sure uh you know i think somebody said something like out of 10 dinners he may turn in one
2: receipt and that will just be for the food so I think you could feel that, too, if you're – I've obviously never been to a dinner yet with uh, Greg Pop. I'm sure that's coming yeah. uh, in my future. Yeah. But, um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, me, too. I hope it, –
0: it, it's a bucket list thing, I think, for a lot of people in and around the NBA, especially you know before the story came out and probably afterwards, too.
1: Well, Eli, our side conversation – I mean, I have the theory that he was paying for these dinners out of pocket, mainly because – of how much I think that changes the invitation dynamic yeah. to the people that he's trying to bring to these dinners for camaraderie or team building, right? If you're inviting whoever if you're inviting Tim Duncan to a dinner and you're going to then ask him to split the check afterwards, mm. like that doesn't seem like he's a grown man with his own money and his own time. You're asking for an increased investment in time, atop practices and game days and whatever. So, I was assuming that he looks that he looks at those dinners as a as a write off for team building, because otherwise, like I don't see how that invitation functions but for we've the all, team.
2: We've all been to dinners with someone that works for a company, and you know they're going to kind of write it off. Like you you know that like hey, don't worry, I got this dinner. I'm going to write it off, or I'm going to do that. And I, I'm assuming that little nuance in having a dinner with greg pop is not there now uh-huh. you go right so it's like yo whatever the fuck man this is the best bottle of wine i'm getting this you know me you trust me i've eaten and drank for 50 years i got this yeah. you know that those little things make that dinner that much more special as opposed to kind of like a team function if you will and that's not as fun to go to you know other teams do it but we don't have the sommelier greg pop on our staff
0: The other thing I want you to think about too with this, and it was uh, it was something that was always in the back of my head, uh, especially as uh, the more people I talked to, for that one, like again, go back. I mentioned this with PB and J. Like go back to your childhood. If you're like, if your mother, your father, your your parents, family members, friends, if they prepared a meal for you, like come to the table. I cooked this meal for you. I'm gonna feed you. It's my way of you know showing care for you, showing love for you. That has been as true. As anything throughout time, like people, you know, taking care of other people at the table, and it resonates in a really deep way. It doesn't matter where you're from, and the Spurs have had an incredibly international locker room for a long time. But that is one of the, you know, most. I mean, you think you're like, oh man, that's like mama's cooking. Like you in college, you go home, you know, for Thanksgiving, if like the, you know, the food that you remember from your childhood. I'm just saying that like the art of bringing someone to the table to feed them, to nourish them, to take care of them it resonates on a very deep level within us all. And I think that's a really key thing that he understands incredibly well and is uh, not to be lost with thinking about these dinners and what they mean to everybody in the organization, all the players, the staff, um, and, and the you know camaraderie kind of
2: that they're able to forge. It's an inherent skill. There's not a lot of people that— can do dinner like that you know a lot of oh, dinners yeah. are forced you can get invited to a dinner who cares who's paying if it's just awkward and annoying he seems like the type of dude where it's just perfect it's like there's no friction whatsoever he already knows everything on the menu don't even look you type type thing and that speaks
1: volumes B- baxter does the team culture that's created in part by those dinners Um, And to bring in the other subject that we already talked about, the owners that are investing across nutrition or making investments to make the players' lives better, is that actually assisting in the recruitment of top-tier players to organizations, in your opinion? And, And maybe it does or maybe it doesn't. But for me, Eli, I think that when I read about Spurs culture, it makes me want to be a part of it like that's something like if i was on a team of any kind and our team got together for dinners and that sounds like an amazing culture to me yeah um and you know i'm assuming maybe top tier players make their decisions maybe mostly on finances and personal choices but if i'm a if i'm a mid-level player and there's a team culture That's exciting and that I know about. I don't know. I think that would affect my decision-making process in some way. But I'm curious about how you feel about that.
0: Yeah. Well, I think it all adds up to the culture, like you were talking about. And culture is an important part. It's just like anything, right? Like, these guys are going to work. What's that workplace like? Um, How do employees feel there? Is there a good sense of togetherness or people on an island? Is there infighting and dysfunction or... You know, is it going to be a place where I'm happy to go into the office and I can feel like I can do work and people care about my well-being and whatnot? And the dinners um, play a part of that. The Spurs are kind of unique in in how they do it under Pop because it's like incredible knowledge and goes all out in curating everything. You sit down and you get an amazing experience every time. Um, Other teams have adopted that in part from uh, the Spurs way. Uh, I know that Steve Kerr in Phoenix was wanting to do some of that and... David Griffin, who was the, um, worked with him there, and then became the uh, the GM in Cleveland, was doing some of that. I've heard about other stories, you know, his disciples doing that elsewhere. But yeah, I think it. I think that there are certain things that matter to a lot of people, right? Like, okay, what what are you gonna pay me? Uh, what's gonna be my role in this team? Do I have a chance to win? Are my business opportunities here strong? Um, you know, there's a there's a lot of factors to it, but somewhere along the way. The culture of the place matters, and um, I've especially become come to appreciate that in recent years because as the NBA has become this place where you don't need to be in a big market to have success. You can, you know, get all the advertising dollars you want in Oklahoma City or in Milwaukee or Memphis or wherever because it's such a digital world. And I can watch any game anywhere from my phone and follow. You know, anybody can have an enormous social media following anywhere from Antarctica or whatever. Um, it then amplifies other things. And it's like, okay, how strong is the leadership here? Um, how together, you know, the ownership, what does that look like? How would, you know, the, the practice facility, the the investment you're making in sports science and analytics and uh, in nutrition, you know, and helping get the absolute best out of me, like how great is everybody in all these categories? And the dinners, you know, are a key part of the culture. Look, the amount of people, Who were involved in the Spurs, still involved in the Spurs, former players, they describe these experiences as being like the backbone of the camaraderie that you would see on the court. When guys are on the road and even at home, they don't have to all hang out. They don't have to come together at any point. And especially on the road, they have a million things they could do. Guys go to New York, I'm going to, you know, I have all these people I want to see. But the fact that they can get together and learn about each other, especially in an international locker room like that. Like, I'm going to learn about your culture and where you're from, tell me your story, all this other stuff. It it connects people in a way that's uh, that's different. And uh, so anyways, that's a very long, rambling answer to your question. I, but I, I again,
2: I think it speaks to culture. Culture matters. Well, I think the Spurs kind of, it, from a glance, I don't report on the NBA, but I casually watch it and I find that The Spurs puts out these like metered players, like incredible talent, but like from Tim Duncan to Kawhi, who's came and now not on their team, and now in Toronto and and, uh, David Robinson, Tony Parker, Ginobili, like this humble aesthetic, if you will. And it's almost like, was that because of like a wine culture and a food culture there that maybe is different in Miami that might be a little bit more, I don't know, cigars and fucking pop off. I don't know. Like what's Miami culture versus LA culture and San Antonio culture could be dictated by the different food and things that are available there. They're very much about team.
0: It is about the team. It is about, uh, you know, pop would Greg Popovich would, it was, it was always legendary. He would ride Tim Duncan, greatest power forward ever. One of the greatest players in NBA history. A, a, you can't say enough things about how amazing he was, but Pop would ride him incredibly hard all the time. And it was a message that everybody here is going to be held accountable. Everybody matters. Um, There's no one player that's bigger than the team. It's about the team first, last, and always. And there are different organizations that the stars have. And it's understandable in a way, right? Like people who are transcendent can have more leeway in various places. But there it is about the team. It is always about the team. As long as the structure that's placed there is there,
2: it's going to be about the team. So, and that's not true everywhere. Could you, uh, now that the uh, Warriors are officially in the 2019 NBA Finals, uh, as of the recording of this podcast, could you talk real quick about your your article that you wrote, where basically kind of stemmed from a charcuterie board that their coach Kerr at the time or currently did and then kind of explained the new offense that essentially kind of broke the NBA.
0: Yeah. Oh, so that was such a fun such story. Such a good piece. Thank you, man. It was, uh, it's an interesting journey as I look back on it. Um, so here's how that started. When I was covering the Lakers, Luke Walton, then the head coach said, I want to have us do 300 passes a game. And I remember asking him like, that's kind of an arbitrary number. Like, where does it come from? And he said, oh, well, when, you know, Steve Kerr got hired in Golden State, that's what he said. He wanted 300 passes a game. And I was like, hmm, that's interesting. So I kind of tucked that in my back pocket. And then during one of the NBA finals uh, they were in, uh, I asked an assistant coach, like, hey, you know, walk me through the very beginning, the genesis of your guys' offense. There was some mention of like 300 passes a game. And he was like, oh, yeah, you know, I remember it was uh, Bruce Frazier, the assistant coach. He said, oh, yeah, I remember we were like, you know, we really want to move the ball. And uh, we were trying to figure out, you know, what the offense was going to look like. And, Me and Steve were like living in San Diego, but we were commuting up here a lot. And then one day we were at a wine bar at the airport and we were like moving peanuts and raisins around on a board. I was like, well, that's that's interesting. Um, And I think I texted him later. I was like, what, um, you know, do you, it was the Oakland airport. And do you remember the name of the wine bar or whatever? So after that finals, I went to, as I was flying back to LA where I live, I stopped at that, I flew out of Oakland and I went to the wine bar and I just said to some employees, like, hey, look, this is going to sound a little crazy, but I'm I'm kind of curious if anyone here remembers this thing that happened, like, I don't know, three or four years ago. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was, like, this afternoon. Steve Kerr was in. Bruce Frazier was in. Here's, you know, Bruce Frazier looks like this. You, pre- you guys probably know what Steve Kerr looks like. And somebody there was, like, yeah, actually, I do remember that. Like, he had the board on. And he was, like, moving stuff around. And somebody had asked him, you know. And I don't think the guy worked there anymore. But, like, you know, oh, we're really excited to have you. What's the new offense going to look like? Like you know, under Mark Jackson, the previous coach, it was really ISO and the ball didn't move, and I think they were actually last in the NBA in passes. And so, um, they that that person I called them later. And I was like, "Hey, do you remember this thing from a few years ago?" He was like, "Absolutely." It was like super vivid memory. I talk about it to people. I think about it, you know, when I'm watching the team sometimes, like that very beginning. And then I I walked it. I walked Steve through. Steve Kerr later. What this kid remembered, he was like, "Yeah, that's actually exactly how it happened." And uh, he said that was oddly enough the first time when I was diagramming plays, I kind of had a vision for what, how the team would play, for the way that they would, the way that we would function on the court, our offense. And it was, yeah, it was heavily predicated on ball movement. Again, the team was last in the NBA in passes. They wanted to dramatically increase that figure, and there were certain X's and OL's and elements of throughout Steve's career. Uh, you know, when certain elements of the triangle when he was in Chicago, certain elements of ball movement when he was in San Antonio, certain elements when he was in Phoenix. So those kind of marriage of things, this stew, if you will, of his offensive experiences. And three, like, amazing places to, to be. I, Steve has, like, the places he's been, the people he's been under, it's kind of like Forrest Gump in a way, like all these amazing points in, in basketball history. Uh, so that's how that started. And it was just kind of this story about how the Warriors – offense came to be and
2: uh i love how he through your story i mean it's pretty vivid he it's almost as if steve kerr got asked by a random waiter yeah at that wine bar hey man what are you gonna do different and instead of just blowing him off or giving him like a quick quick yeah he (laughs) said i'll show you (laughs) and he cleared the charcuterie
0: board right and and he was like moving stuff around and he was explaining like you know he was like i guess with what does it say like uh uh, cranberries and marcona almonds like here's how we want to Here's how we want to function, and the um, cranberries
2: was the defense. The almond yeah. was the offense. You had Clay Thompson, almond, yeah. <laughs> or sorry, it was almond Steph Curry, almond Clay Thompson, almond Draymond. I laughed, cackled out loud, describing that it was so funny. Yeah, um, it was, it
0: was, it was a really fun one, and uh, I think Steve told me at some point after that came out that people would say to him from time to time, um, you know, instead of like going back to the drop, we gotta dr- go back to the drawing board which the Warriors obviously haven't, have, haven't had to do a lot over the last several <laughs> years, they've been just fine. But they've, they've cracked to him, like you need to go back to the charcuterie report. So that was a really fun story. Actually, uh, an interesting side note off of that, uh, the Purdue men's basketball team, I saw this in a story later, that I think the head coach or one of their, their analytics person had assigned them that particular story on the Warriors, as like homework material, and they wanted to ratchet up their passes per game throughout uh the course of the season so like they were using they they read that they, everybody on the team had to read that story like and uh so
2: i i texted steve about that and then you're like thank you for the 20 more page views <laughs> well no but it was
0: what was cool was that uh i was like i kind of started following them i know steve did too and then seeing the success of that team over the last few, couple of years it's not because of my story they, just, they have really good players and they execute well and moving the ball is not necessarily like a uh a revolutionary thing but anyways
2: it was that was kind of a fun thing to see after the fact that's rad um talking about wine i think you mentioned a bit in your article that it took someone like lebron james kind of to kind of co-sign wine and kind of kind of usher it in do you how do you feel about weed in the nba well that's that's interesting um and i guess
0: maybe even just in just professional sports yeah uh you know, I mean, we're in California where it's legal, right? Am yeah, I, yeah, it's I, legal. I, as a resident, I should know this. Yeah. Um, I think that the whole stigma about that about marijuana has changed in professional sports. Excuse me. In that, um, if there was kind of a negative perception of it, I think people have, and and I think this also coincides with mental health being a something that was kind of a taboo subject. Having changed a lot in the NBA, and professional sports in general, I think the way that people look at marijuana in professional sports, you know incredibly high-stress situations. You think about the stakes for these guys, the way of the world on them, their livelihood, all the people that are relying on them, again, like individual corporations in a way. Uh, it's, def- it's definitely changed. And if it was something that people wouldn't talk about before, trying to keep quiet, whatever, I don't think that's the case as much. And so uh, I know, and I know, I think my colleague at ESPN, Tom Juno, did a story about this one NFL player's campaign to try to make it more acceptable amongst other players, especially because they're in pain so much. And this was like a, you know, medication or whatever. And I think those, those, that term, medication, is something that people now more openly associate with. Uh, marijuana in professional sports in general, in a way that that you know takes it just takes kind of the taboo um, sheen off of it or whatever you want to call it.
2: So when you when you learn more about wine and why certain NBA players drink it, and let's think outside of pop in terms of a kind of social thing, but and the the transition between being a beer and liquor league, which was definitely like I have a beer to like take the edge off, liquor yeah. we're partying. Was wine kind of a wind-down thing for players? Like, was it kind of a mellow-me-out-after-the-game type thing? It's it's interesting. Um, and I, I've often tried to
0: find, in a lot of my stories, if you read through them carefully, you'll see certain themes. And one of the themes is, like, often trying to find how something began. And with that story, I was often like, okay, why you know why did this happen? And I remember some players were saying, I think it was doing Wade, he was like, you know, maybe it was Carmelo, Anthony, like, When you get into your 30s, you slow down a little bit, you know, you want to—and your guys are maybe taking a little bit better care of their bodies, and uh, wine was a part of that. It wasn't, you know—excuse me, it's a little um, bit—maybe a little bit easier uh, for the next day than, like, having a bunch of, like, hardcore liquor the night before, so— As they're thinking about maintaining their body and maybe slowing down just you know maintenance i think that plays into it Mm -hmm. um guys had mentioned kind of slowing down and i think there's a better appreciation just in america in general of wine at the dinner table whereas overseas in so many of these countries especially in europe south america like all over basically it seems like everywhere but america uh wine was just considered to be part of the dinner table so i think there's a culmination of things just of wine being more acceptable amongst um americans and you know the 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 big names in the NBA who kind of co-signed on it, as you as you pointed out, the age at which they were at, mm. and slowing down, maybe taking wanting to take a little bit better care of their bodies. Um, there's a yeah, there's a lot of uh, uh, pieces to the puzzle there as to why why it kind of took off in a way.
2: Because LeBron at 23 talking about drinking a bunch of wine makes him sound like a drunk. Kind of young kid, but LeBron at 33 is like, oh, that dude's aged very well. Understands it classy, seems a little more refined or
0: cultured or, or whatever you want to call it. Um, and that's not to say that people like in their early 20s who know a lot about wine are, you know, like it's a faux pas or anything. But yeah, I mean, look, a, a, a central tenet of wine is it takes time. Mm. From, you know, it's that's a key part of it. So,
1: from the NBA's perspective, have you seen? I'm assuming that marijuana is still part of like a, a drug offense from mm. the NBA standard. I don't know that for a fact, Me but neither. I'm kind of assuming since it's not federally legal. But have you run into anything, Baxter, where you know you know players are taking cannabis or the NBA taking a lighter stance on cannabis, knowing that they can technically, if you're a team... you're golden state if you're the clippers if you're the lakers like you live in a state where it's legal um if you're in denver it's legal um is there a relaxed attitude from the nba side of things that that you've seen or heard of i'll be
0: honest with you it's i mean it's a very good question i honestly don't know um and it's it's an even more pertinent question given uh you know as you mentioned the Kind of legal things that have happened in in particular states with respect to that, but uh, that's a great question. I wish I didn't answer
2: for you there. I probably should, right? But well, I think uh, you bring up great points with the wine of of kind of the the rebound, the hangover of wine is a little bit better than pounding a bunch of whiskey the night before. And and I think about that too when I'm out drinking. Like, all right, wine hangover's bad, but I can kind of measure myself. And then weed hangover's kind of the best in terms of like, it's not a raging headache the next morning. It's a little bit less taxing on the body. It does mellow you out after you play. Um, so I'm curious how it does come into fruition within the NBA in the coming years as medicinal, even as recreational, as just like not even treating it as a... Medicine, just as a chill-out drug. Yeah. (laughs) No, as you just said,
0: in the coming years, I think that'll be really interesting. And I think probably just for, like, you know, the country in general. Um, But, yeah, especially, especially in the NBA, in professional sports, given how long that kind of stuff was looked at in a certain light,
2: and how things have have have, and are, have been changing. I, guess. I feel like NBA is the sport to make that happen too, though. At least a little bit more forward thinking than some of their uh, competing sports, you counterparts, know, counterparts. Yeah. Counterparts, like I think I think it's the way to do it, and I think it's. I'm curious to see who pops out and kind of gets ahead of it. Well, with
1: the way marijuana marketing and CBD marketing is happening. Mm. I would not be surprised in the next six months if you're looking at retired players who like no longer is the official kind of part of the league but still represents the league. Like, yeah. There there have to be offers on management table for retired players right now to say, hey, make your own line of CBD. Like that ha- that literally has, it's happening. When when Instagram influencers are getting their own C B D lines for like two hundred thousand followers on Instagram, you know that same you know Select C B D, like the biggest C B D company in California and beyond. Yeah. If they got the introduction to a former NBA player, they'd be they'd be all over it. But I wanted to I wanna talk about another subject that's still kind of related to s- stimulating your mind or mm. changing your body's behavior, because Baxter, you've written a lot about caffeine, mm-hmm. um, and specifically the, the pre-game coffee rituals, especially on on players uh, of the Portland Trailblazers, um, because I thought it was so interesting in your article, I never thought about the travel time of basketball yeah. players in oh, comparison to other sports, and noting that they're the only Pacific Northwest team right. in the NBA makes them travel that much more. And, and what does I,
2: travel I, time look like for NBA? Oh man, well compared to other sports too.
0: Okay, so uh uh the NBA, let's see, eighty two games, one hundred and seventy six days, that's like a game every other day. But in that time span, they're traveling, I think the Trailblazers they often lead the league. It's like fifty thousand miles during that span. So that can be upwards of I think it breaks down to like 250 miles a day, which I think is like, imagine if every single day you flew from, I think New York to Pittsburgh, um, and for eight months. And then had to do something after. <laughs> right, you have to perform <laughs> but here's, So here's the thing, like, I, I mean, look, and I, I write a lot about travel and fatigue in um, uh, sports science for ESPN. It's a, a very passionate uh, thing I do, or, or a subpa- uh, subject I'm very passionate about, but it is brutal what these guys have to go through. So imagine, you know, one of the the most feared scenarios in the NBA is the back-to-back, where you play a game on the West Coast and then have to fly into Denver. And so, you know, and there's a lot of factors. Like, but let's say it's a 7.30 start time. And uh, let's say it's a national TV game. Those always run a little bit longer, the halftime, the commercials, uh, things of that nature. You might, the game might end, let's say 9.45, 10. That's if there's no overtime. You know, guys got to get showered, get dressed, talk to the media. They'll probably eat. They got to get to the plane. NBA rules stipulate that you have to fly out kind of the uh, the night of. So they might get in. They're losing an hour on the time zone change uh you know the distance from the airport in denver i think when you guys say you just came back from denver yeah yeah so you know uh but the distance between that and downtown that's a hall yeah um you know there can be inclement weather there there's the elevation change it's typically very dry uh guys might not get to you know i have people tell me that like sometimes they would get to their door at the hotel um at the same time that like the next day's newspaper would be there so or or they get there before so just be waiting for or uh, after so be waiting for them And then you got to play a game less than 24 hours later against a team that might be rested. So fatigue is a huge, huge part of the NBA. And so that story you mentioned about the Trailblazers, you know, if you go into any NBA locker room, there's going to be caffeine supplements. Might be the energy shots, the little drinks. You'll see coffee. You'll see tea. You'll see uh, things like Red Bull, whatnot. And because of this schedule they're on, guys are constantly tired throughout the year. I've had so many athletic trainers and players and coaches and nutritionists and sports scientists talk about this. Guys are really tired throughout the year. You know, a game might end, then you get home, like, I think it was a, maybe it was a sleep scientist who told me this once, he said, you know, we, we are, we're we always talking about, okay, they stay in nice hotels, they fly on charter flights, they get paid well, like, you know, don't complain, I worked hard too, my job's tough. He's like, okay, but let's, let's say that you, uh, had to perform a really high stress activity at night for several hours. Your adrenaline's pumping. You might not get to bed till 2 or 3 a.m., maybe. And you got to do that, let's say, a couple times a week. Um, imagine how you'd feel after eight months. And that's not even counting the travel. So it's really tough. So, like the trail, but you know, so as this kind of segues into, into what we were talking about earlier, as the investments have been made and fine tuning diets, nutrition, all this stuff. Uh, they're looking at, okay, what are you put? you know, we want to give you a lift, like you need a jolt, you know, you're tired before work, just like a lot of America or a lot of the world. What can we give you that will be, that you'll like, that we know will work, that you'll trust, uh, that won't be so potent that you won't be able to get any sleep that night? It's tough to ch- check all those boxes. And guys were like, you know, I had some special say, look, it seems like antiquated or really simple, but... A cup of coffee is a pretty safe route for that. Like, you know what's in it? It's coffee and water, and uh, it tends to do the trick. So, yeah, they were, you know, and, of course, because NBA players are particular, the way that they have it made there is, like, quite a process and whatnot. But, uh, the, the the you know, I think the headline of the story is they're, like, the NBA's frequent flyers. The, the Trailblazers actually, I believe, um, again, I'd have to pull it up and look at the stats, but I think they fly more than any team in professional sports. So you can make the case that they're the most sleep-deprived team in professional sports. So that what caffeine is for them is different than anybody else.
2: Um, it's like working the graveyard shift in some ways. Dude, uh, I, so yeah. I, we were talking about this earlier. The caffeine article is, is, is incredible. And, and kind of when we play basketball, Jeff and I, it's definitely not at that level. But even at like high school ball, like you get the jitters, you know, your anxiety's through the roof, your yeah. heart's pumping. I almost, I don't want that anxiety. Like I don't need that of energy and i can only imagine walking out onto an nba court with the right. lights tens of thousands of people looking at you and
0: then the national television and yeah a, and just imagine for the playoffs and like if you don't play you know guys have incentives in their contracts like if you don't do this well you're missing out on x millions of dollars you got all this other stuff so yeah it's a um it's a i mean the stress on these guys is like is tremendous and so you know and then just imagine trying to come down from that. It's like, okay, yeah, all right, good game. Uh, now just have a nice night's nice sleep. It's like, you know, I'll have, have uh, when I was a, a beat writer covering the, the Celtics uh, for the Globe and then covering uh, the Lakers for ESPN, you know, like after a game, the rush of deadline of getting all my work done and everything like that, it's tough to even come down from that. not even play in the game. Yeah. And it's, it's true for anybody who's even working at the game. You talk to people who just work game nights for teams, like it's it's not easy. So, um, and they didn't even play. So it's sleep in the NBA, a subject I've written about a lot, is a huge, huge deal. Um, and I think that as a culture, we're starting to learn about the effects of sleep loss and sleep deprivation more than we ever have. Part because of these, I'm holding up my telephone and what they do to that. So. Uh, but yeah, it's you know caffeine is a is, it's an important and heavily scrutinized thing in the league, and the the Trailblazers are, were for me a key area to look at in that regard.
1: In that article, uh, you talked about how certain players asked for a specific coconut-based superfood creamer, <laughs> yeah. and you know their their beans are from a local roaster. Uh, But the reason I'm kind of bringing that up is for a long time, the league has kind of been associated with the Gatorades of the world. Um, You mentioned earlier that there's still like kind of Red Bulls in locker rooms for energy stimulants. But I'm assuming a lot of players are looking at the ingredient decks of the aforementioned Gatorades, Powerades, Red Bulls, even the coffee that they're drinking, which is why they want the coconut-based superfood creamer versus milk or anything else like that. is Gatorade? Yeah, are they still drinking Gatorade in the NBA?
0: Gatorade is still an enormous sponsor, and you'll see the, the orange tubs behind benches, you'll see it in team fridges, in locker rooms, but I think, this kind of coincides with what we were talking about earlier, as players have made more of an investment in their bodies and in trying to be as precise as they can about what goes in and how that Im- impacts them, taking a look at the ingredients and maybe relying on the advice of a personal nutritionist, a personal dietitian, somebody who works with the team who maybe 20 years ago the team didn't have somebody in that role, but now they do. Uh, those are absolutely discussions that are are frequent. You'll see, you know. So, and 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 what guys' preferences are, like you know, you mentioned Portland. That's that's based, in fact, on that. Like, it, you know, they could easily say, "I'm tired. Um, I'll take anything," but it's it's not about that. They're wanting to be precise about what goes into their body. And I also think that that sugar in general is a is a more Scrutinized topic in the league. I know we talked about Dwight Howard earlier, but I think that trying to limit sugar intake in a way um, is something I've heard about and come across maybe more and more. Um, And, uh, you know, maybe sugar, I mean, I I mentioned some of those sugar documentaries earlier that kind of like, oh, sugar is like, all right, here's what it can
2: do to you. Um, I think that that's maybe been a a cultural thing as well. Are there any other shifts? you're seeing in the NBA. I mean, I, I I see like plant-based stuff being being a big shift. Like with Kyrie saying he's going yeah. vegan. Um, Beyond Meat alone has like DeAndre Jordan, Kyrie, Chris Paul as investors. JJ Redick's like on their roster. Mm-hmm. Are you seeing that as a thing with more NBA players? Yeah. Um, so the plant-based vegan movement. Again, this just goes
0: into like, well, how can I eat better? How can I uh, be more? Um, and and I think when you have certain really important athletes uh, in sports in general. I think Tom Brady's been his diet. I think I've read some stories about it. Uh, he is, that man is incredibly precise and uh, you know, get people will look at the success he's had and say, okay, well he's doing something right. So uh, there's, it, there's movements like that. So when, when younger players and I, and here's something else I want to distinguish too. I think there's a time when players are younger and they'll, like people who are younger, think that, you know, they're kind of invincible in a way. And these guys are unbelievable athletes. They can do anything. They're Greek gods, they can jump to the moon, like it's incredible. And maybe they didn't really care about their diet until later in their career when it's like they start slowing down, Father Time starts to intervene and they're trying to ink out like one or two more contracts in their career so they really need to all right I got to start icing I got to start eating better I can't stay out as late I got to do this to go to that manage my money better um I think a general movement that I've seen is those things are happening earlier mm. and if guys are you know they they're trying to be more diligent about their diets early on they're trying to be more diligent even about like post career investments early on they're not waiting until the end mm. Um, and and they're doing other things, to take care of their body. Like, okay, I'm gonna really invest in physical therapy and recovery is a huge, huge word around the NBA. You go in locker rooms, you'll see the Normatec sleeves on yeah. a lot of guys' feet uh, or legs. Sorry. So these are big, big movements. So I would say just in general, taking care of your body, and then there's a lot of offshoots from that. And and you know what they're eating uh,
2: plays a huge, huge part into that. And there's more info. I feel that we didn't have during high school too. Like yeah. as just as athletes, like Jeff and I were talking about like team dinners in high school. where like awesome mothers of the team would like ZD and pasta yeah. and enchiladas, everything. And like the boys need carbs before the game. And yeah, like that's loading. F- that fucked us up <laughs> growing up. Like I got benched because I ate KFC before a game, but I didn't know any better. Cause I mm-hmm. thought you're supposed to eat chicken before you play basketball. And I was, like, throwing up in the layup line. (laughs) So, and uh, you see that in, like, you know, the only introspection I get into young athletes' lives like that is, like, the Ball Brothers and their show on Facebook. And you kind of see, like, they're all, like, these for better words like basic eaters like they're in latvia eating mcdonald's like that's all they want but it's almost like they still have that mentality that hasn't transitioned of yo i'm, I'm working out eight hours a day i'm gonna have mcdonald's like i'm good or i, I want french fries and ketchup like that's just what i want yeah uh, but but there's other athletes i know and, and younger folks that are just really they're just aware they're just there's more knowledge out there and they're soaking it in
0: absolutely um you know this has been one of the one of the you know, the the big things that have changed with technology, like you have like you have the world at your fingertips. There's nothing you can't learn about. And, you, you know, it wasn't always true. Guys could get away with things because it's like, well, I didn't know. Mm-hmm. But now there's no excuse for not knowing. And um, it's so competitive to be at this level. It's so competitive. It is so hard to get there. It is so hard to stay. There's a million things outside your control that will impact your ability to be a uh, like you know a high quality earner of dollars. So and to make an impact, you have to take advantage of everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you don't, you know look, this isn't to say that you need to be super militant and you can't like have a burger every now and again. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying that that you know being focused on this as an element of your improvement as a player. Is something that you you have to do because if, if nothing else, because everybody else is doing it. It's not like back in the old days when like everybody's diet was like meh. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of this is in some ways. If guys are in the gym working on their game, they're going home and they're recovering. You know, they're doing like hot and cold baths and and various recovery techniques. You got to do that. You got to have you know these are investments you got to make if you wanna if you wanna make your mark.
1: In in the article about wine. Uh, you talked about Dwayne Wade and well and Gabriel Union but how they they spoke how younger players in the league maybe when Dwayne was a younger player it was kind of all about chains and then this new set of uh, new set of younger players are are thinking about their body and financial security in ways that the generations before them haven't really thought about it and that made me think about the everyday kind of financial transactions that normal people like Eli and I have when you you know we're brainstorming a project and uh, I'm buying him coffee or we're going out to a group dinner and we're kind of splitting the tab because it's eight people and it's a large format dinner and the pop culture reference we have of this is lebron james playing lebron james and in cheap ass in, in train wreck and uh, train wreck yeah. and he plays this character that's really cheap right where he will split coffee with his friend because a bill hater right yeah. yeah and you know that was a really funny movie and <laughs> i know i'm going into a diatribe but it's players have all this information related to how many professional players have gone broke after earning millions in the league and you know, that information's right in front of them. So are they being cheaper because they know that the lifespan of their MBA career might be five to eight years if they're lucky and that's gonna be their entire earnout period for the rest of their life? Yeah.
0: That's a that's a, a great question. I don't know if I would say they're quote unquote being cheaper. I think what I'd say is they are being more, They're more aware of what you just said, that their lifespan, not lifespan, but like their, their, the period of time in which they can be an, an earner of NBA dollars is finite, and that they have to capitalize on that while they can, take care of their bodies so they can get you know maybe more years out of it than they, they otherwise would if they didn't. And also, if there was a point in time when athletes, uh, I think this is another trend you you'd asked me about earlier, uh, like trends I see. I think if there was a point in time when athletes would say, like, okay, my life is my NBA, NFL, whatever career, and I don't have to think about anything else beyond that. I don't think that's true anymore. I think players are aware that they need to invest in post-career things during their career, which is when their, they're like, you know, status as an earner is probably at their highest. They're Their most celebrity, their most ability to make connections, et cetera, et cetera. So – uh, that's a, been a huge movement. You talk about Dwayne and Wine. You know, he told me he didn't think initially that he would even do something like this. No, well, after his career. And the guy was like, well, why not now? He's like, okay, you know. So here he is. And he's, you know, I mean, up until he retired, he was still doing it while he was a player. So, you know, that adds cachet to it. Uh, but yeah, I remember, you know, to what you referenced earlier, we did that documentary, ESPN did uh, 30 for 30, about broke and these guys, because they are so incredibly competitive, would almost spend each other into poverty. Um, like you get really nice car, I got to get an even better car. You get really nice threads, I got to get even better threads. Like da 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 And they are unbelievably competitive people. That's partly why they are where they are. But it can you can almost you know they can, it can go too far. So, but I think there's been a huge movement towards post career investments during their careers. You know, we've seen it in particularly in Silicon Valley. With hedge funds, venture capitalists Tech, things of that nature Several of the guys in the Warriors Incredibly conveniently located for that type of thing But they've done that um, And you've seen it, you know, LeBron Invested in a ton of stuff uh, You're seeing Yeah, so that, that's a movement in and of itself But I think players are just being smarter With their money And they're realizing the much bigger picture Like I'm going to be a player for a short period And then there's the rest of my life how can I use this to set that up financially, professionally, et cetera, et cetera? And it's cool to see I don't mean, like I don't think anybody wants to see some star uh be in such a position where after their career it's it's sad, and they're having to i don't know try to leverage some of their celebrity from way back when to just make ends meet, and you know the situation becomes really dire so it's it's cool to see, and I think it helps it helps a lot of other people think about things too, like when these guys do things. The impact goes far beyond sports. It teaches us I mean, because that's how big their platform is and their voice is. So if they're if they're you know, talking about post career investments and thinking about the bigger picture beyond just the career you have, I'm sure that resonates with people in uh Who don't even play basketball to think about you know should I invest boy a four hundred one k sounds nice and you know whatever those kinds of things so
1: part of the way players earn especially top tier players are are through their endorsement deals uh we've already kind of talked about the negative effects of sugar which seems to me like we're kind of becoming at a cross section where players may or may not start to take endorsements that they can't actually use or back up and i think again i don't know russell westbrook's yes yeah, he really like, drinking mountain is he really or? drinking mountain dew i don't know but <laughs> no. has anything you've seen where obviously those checks are big so i don't think people are going to just say no to that but you know have you seen any player think about their soda deal or you know certain elements that aren't good for the brand and or aren't good for them specifically and they might actually like say no to something five to ten years ago they might say yes to
0: that's a great that's a great question um because it, it 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 there's this point when it's like how much money am i getting but then is it something that i believe in that i actually use that i want people associating me or that i want kids looking up to me to use as well you know especially if i don't use this product at all in fact if I try to stay away from it as, as much as possible I don't know I can't speak to particular situations I have I've had some private conversations with people in the league on the sports science athletic training side where you know they've mentioned I won't, I won't go into specifics here excuse me where they've mentioned uh, their organization has a deal with you know a, a soft drink company an energy drink company, a sports drink company, and they want their players to not consume those things uh, because they don't think they're the healthiest thing for them. And that's where the business and the basketball sides kind of collide in a way. And I think it's an interesting kind of dance that some of these people have to do who are in a position like, all right, you're the sports nutritionist, right? On this side, we have an X dollar amount of deal with this company, So the product is going to be around a lot, always, but you know through your training and knowing what's best for these guys that you actually don't want them to have that. And maybe you want to limit their exposure. I think that's a really interesting crossroads that you have to make. Um, And I do think that even some of the conversations I've had, I'm sure that those that that goes probably throughout professional sports. Um, And I'm sure there's probably individual athletes who who will think about that stuff Uh, 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 more carefully now than maybe before, whereas, like, you know, I mean, it's again, it speaks to what we're talking about. Like, players are more aware. They're more diligent about that stuff, what's going in. And as they think about their brand in that way, too, I think that absolutely factors in.
2: I wonder if two things are going on. I wonder if this friction, if you will, behind the scenes of, kind of big conglomerate sports drink companies or whatever it may be that is counterintuitive to the nutrition of the teams, I wonder if that informs companies, let's say Gatorade long term to make healthier Gatorade, you're already seeing it, right? There's like Gatorade, less sugar, Gatorade, more electrolytes, whatever it may be like, hey, we're going to make the nutrition aspect of this better and better. We're already in the NBA. And if it, gets, if it gets better, I wonder if that's a thing. Or I wonder if you start seeing more owner-investors of stuff. And you're seeing that already, right? Like people like, d- does Lonzo Ball uh, sign with Nike or does he start his own company? He starts his own company. And you see like Kobe Bryant towards the end, like, I'm just going to invest in body armor, the drink. Uh, is the next play like someone just investing or creating their own the way some players invest in plant-based meat companies. Yeah. You know. Make your own endorsement, if you will. It's a, it's again, it's
0: yeah, another good question. You guys are bringing the heat today. Um, I think that one of the things that probably informs some of these companies, whether it's soft drinks or sports drinks, soft drinks, um, energy drinks, is that the general conversation at large is people are probably more looking at the ingredient list than probably ever before. And they're maybe thinking harder about, Sugar or chemicals or I don't I can't pronounce this. I mean, we live in Southern California. I mean, that's a huge part big of the converse- part of our culture. Yeah, it's a big part of our culture. What are, you, what are you putting into your body? And you see a lot of restaurants where, you know, we want a vegan menu. We want to gluten free this. So that you know, people are being really. So I think that I think the general conversation at large that's just happening uh, is is informing some of those conversations that you and the thought process you're probably talking about. And then probably at a more finite level, I think sports too, because if there's anybody who has to be really dialed in on what's going into their system, it's these players. And it's the team's job on the performance side, uh, like athletic trainers and nutritionists and whatnot, to help them be at their best. And if I am going to provide options, I mean, those options have to get them there. So, you know, there's a lot of scrutiny Uh, more than ever before for sure
1: i'm gonna be excited to read the future baxter article that talks about the nba player that turned down a million dollars because it wasn't something that he agreed like I think that's happening within the next 12 months
2: because we're only talking about the shoe deals that are getting turned down right like oh like uh, notoriously someone will turn down this shoe deal to start their own company or turn down this deal because the deck didn't look as good they didn't care about me as a person the way Adidas did so I'm a sign with Nike or vice versa it's got to be happening with food and it's got to have bigger reverberations than we're thinking about
1: when Beyonce walks out of a Reebok room because she doesn't feel like it's represented I'm telling you that there's things that have already happened that the three of us may not be privy to but it's for sure happened from some sugary sports beverage company approaching some player and it just doesn't work out the specifics we don't know but i know in my gut that that's already happening for sure. and so i think it's only a matter of time before something like that gets leaked or you know or someone comes out about it because the these athletes as you've mentioned Baxter, not only they corporate like individual corporations they're also their own megaphones of pop culture and mm. when they want to take a stance on certain issues they have millions of followers to do it and so if they turn down a million dollar deal but also get to elevate themselves to a point of pop culture because they were on the right side of nutritional history or whatever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I see that happening in the very near future.
0: Uh, well, I'll say this. Like, it, it's a very good story that I would hopefully uh, love to write at some point. If, it, if I'm able to find, and if anybody's listening who can help, I'm, you know, it's baxter.hopes <laughs> <at ESPN.com. laughs> uh, But, yeah, that's, I mean, it's a great story. To be told, and I'm—I wouldn't be surprised. I'll put it that way. I wouldn't be surprised if there's instances like that that have 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 happened, or will happen. And uh, yeah, I very much like to be the, the person to write it.
2: Are there, are there any parts of your stories, B-sides, that didn't make the cut for whatever reason? If some of your blockbuster stories that we're talking about, the PB&J, the wine, perhaps, the charcuterie, I'm curious. Yeah,
0: a- um, that's a good good question. I mean, and this is maybe recency bias, but like the the Popovich one, there were like 200 pages of interviews for that. And wow. <laughs> um, I mean, I just like, I take a long time with a lot of the things that I work on. Um, that, I mean, not everything, but a lot of the big stuff, like there's... You know, people see the finished product, but there's, like, a lot of travel and what's lots, lots reporting, tons of interviews, notes, and so much other stuff. Uh, but there was a lot there uh, for him. And I think I posted most of the, like, tidbits or kind of leftovers uh, on one of my pages. Uh, or I, maybe it was on Twitter, I think, uh, that listed a lot of the leftovers there. But there was, like, there was so, so much. And... I'm trying to think of, like, one of my specific favorite. Oh, here's what it was. And actually, this kind of was published in the story, but it was published in an inline sidebar. But it was something I was really passionate about, and it's that there's another Greg Popovich. There's a guy in California who's a winemaker uh, who goes by Gregory Popovich. And for, like, the past 20 (laughs) years— You guys are like this. Actually, when I would talk to people about this story that I was working on, this is the first thing I would say. I'd say, like, I've been working on this story about Pop and his food and wine legend. However, there's another Greg Popovich, and then I'd tell the story I'm about to tell you guys. So in the mid-'90s, this guy gets a call uh, from a restaurant in San Francisco, and they're like, you know, we're just confirming your reservation for tomorrow night. And he's like, I don't know what you're talking about. Like, I'm down here. I made no reservation. And he's like, "Well, mm, that's weird. And then little things like that would happen to him over the period of the next few years. He would get... He would, like, go to a hotel, and he'd say, you check in. And he'd be like, oh, you know, well, of course, we have your usual room ready. <laughs> he'd be like, I haven't stayed here before. Oh, this is weird. Um, and then one day, I think it was when Dennis Rodman was with the Spurs. He saw some story in the paper. He was like, oh, wait, the, their head coach. Oh, wait a minute. That may be why, like, there's another people who are kind of mistaking me for him. I mean, it's not a super common name. But what he started to learn over the years was that this guy was really into food and wine. Uh, because, and I remember there was, I'll just share a couple instances, but one, he called a restaurant in, I think it was like Despago in Maui and was like, okay, um, you know, can I get a reservation? And they're like, no, we're all full. He's like, okay, well, here's my name. You know, if there's anything available, give me a call back. And he gets a call like seconds later from like the manager or the owner. And they're like, oh, Mr. Popovich, of course we have your <laughs> usual table ready. You come in whenever you want. We're honored to have you. And he's like, okay, well, just so you know, like I'm not the coach. They're like sure, sure, sure. So he goes in, and, <laughs> uh, you know. So then, but this would continue to happen. It's happened for like again over a period of almost two decades. Where this guy, he tells me he's like, he's like, it's crazy. I'll get like the best reservation, or like I'm able to move a reservation around. It happened at Spago in Beverly Hills, uh, I think, this past summer, where he called the night before and was like, I need to move my reservation a little bit. They're like, absolutely not, it can't happen uh what's the name he's like popovich you're like absolutely sure whatever you need <laughs> so what happens is, is he'll show up he showed up to this restaurant popovich party of six pop always goes in a party of six that's his like ideal number and he checks in and they're like a bunch of people are at the front super excited they look past him because they think that the coach <laughs> is walking in he's like coming in from valet he's like no no, no it's me And he'll, he'll like, present his card, and he's, like, and everybody's kind of disappointed initially. (laughs) You'll see, like, their kind of shoulders drop, and that happens. Uh, So, but then he's led to a table, best table in the house, right? Center room, kind of away from everybody. There's people there waiting to greet him. And he's, like, just so you know, like, you know, I'm not the coach. And he's had this for – he told me something like, you know, I've lived in this guy's shadow for, like, 20 years. But, he said, it's, like, he doesn't mind it because – He said, Look, he's an incredibly smart guy. Um, He really likes the way he talks about politics and civil issues uh, or civil rights issues. He's obviously a legendary coach. And he says, And I hear more about him and like what he's like in restaurants and people than probably anybody. And I'm telling you, like, nobody has ever said anything but the greatest things about him. He's like, And I always get the best table. I'm always able to get a reservation, (laughs) even though I tell them I'm not the guy, and the service is always above board or like, you know, even above and beyond. And all it is all it cost me is like a little bit of uh, you know disappointment at the beginning. So he said, if I ever get a chance to meet him, I would just like to say thank you because he's had a lot of really memorable meals uh, on behalf of this guy. But it was interesting when I first called him, uh, which was I don't know a year ago maybe. I was like, hey, look, you know, Baxter here, ESPN. Um, this is gonna sound crazy because somebody else had told me they're like, yeah, hey, there's this other Greg Popovich. You should just call this guy. Um, so I called him. He's, I said, you know, Baxter ESPN, it doesn't sound crazy, but I'm working on the story about the Spurs coach and how he's like super into food and wine. And I was just wondering if you've ever been mistaken for him. And he said, he's like, he sighed for a minute and then he thought about it and he said, you know, now that you think about it, now that I think about it, this has happened to me constantly for like 20 years, but he hadn't really like. <laughs>
1: He, he hadn't really, put it together in his head. Yeah, like he was that. just
0: so used to it because this has been his life that he hadn't really taken a step back. And then we talked a lot, and he would like recall instances of it happened at this restaurant or the security guards here at the place where he lives in, like a gated community. He's like, they always call me a coach. Uh, people would joke with him about that, and he's like, yeah, this has just happened a lot. So he was. It was really funny. That was a really delightful part uh, for me for that story. So. I'll say this. I hope that they are able to have – I hope the Popoviches are able to have a glass of wine and
2: meet up someday. I think that would be awesome. That's a cute bow on the whole thing. All right. So I want to read more into, into the other Pop. That's good. Yeah. That's good. Are
1: there any stories you're, they're working on now that you're excited to debut in the coming weeks or months?
2: Yes. And I can't talk about any of them. Gotcha. Follow Baxter on Twitter. How did you got at Baxter? That's awesome.
0: Yeah, it's. A, I have at Baxter on Twitter and at Baxter on Instagram, and it's. Uh, I think it's because there's not a lot of competition. <laughs> That's basically it. Um, I've actually never met another uh, anybody else who has the first name of Baxter. So one day I'll I'll run into that and uh, we'll do our secret Baxter handshake and it'll be it'll be fun. <laughs>
2: Well, Baxter, you you truly are a legend, my friend. Thank you for <laughs> <laughs> thank you for being on and bringing these stories to light. I hope everyone at home enjoyed this very special podcast episode. Um, Baxter, thanks again, man. Thanks for having me, man. I appreciate, appreciate it. it. Yeah, thanks, Baxter. All right, guys. Bye. <laughs>